News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Canadians seem to be less optimistic about COVID these days. It's clear that the rapid spread of Omicron has had an effect on how people are feeling about getting out of the pandemic. The latest poll from Ipsos Global Public Affairs shows this. We're talking now with Sean Simpson, the vice president of Ipsos. Sean, thanks for being here. My pleasure. What kind of changes have you seen? How are Canadians feeling about Omicron? Well, two-thirds believe that uh, even if we're all fully vaccinated, that it won't be enough to stop the spread of Omicron. The, the issue, of course, is that it is uh, highly contagious, uh, that there are you know, many breakthrough cases. Uh, and so even if we do what we're told, uh, many just sort of appear resigned that uh, everybody's going to get it at some point. And so the, the key is to you know, slow the spread to protect the hospitals, but most people are kind of throwing up their hands and saying, well, I'm likely to get it anyways. That's a big change from what the polling that you have done in previous months, isn't it? Well, we're, we're, we're seeing in our polling that um, people appear to be a little less convinced in the efficacy of the vaccines than they were the first time out. And, I, you know, I think rightly so, because we are seeing breakthrough cases. But there is an acknowledgement among among three quarters that, uh, even if 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 the the, the booster shots uh, aren't aren't necessarily working to stop the spread of COVID, uh, they still do provide some protection from um, being admitted into hospital. So most still say that uh, you know they'll get a shot without hesitation. That's three quarters of the population, which is pretty well exactly what it was back last spring when the vaccines were just being rolled out for the first time. So if you were okay getting the initial shot, most people seem okay getting their booster shots. Okay, so what did you find? What were some of the interesting things that you found in this latest round of polling? Uh, well, we did see that 56% of Canadians are concerned about the potential long-term effects of taking booster shots and how many will be needed. And I think that's, that's an important part. You know, we're Canadians are rolling up their sleeves for their third shots in places like Israel, for example. They're already doing their fourth. And I think Canadians are saying, well, how many booster shots do I, do right. I have to get? Uh, and, you know, compounded by the fact that Omicron is still spreading like, uh, like wildfire in, in Canada and other places, you know, wh- where does it all end? Um, and so I, I think that's really what Omicron did overall was, you know, the summer was good. The fall was pretty good. And I think Canadians were starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Then Omicron came and uh, just you know showed how contagious it really is, and Canadians I think lost that that at least temporary hope that they had that the, the end was in sight. Right, but there's still a, is there a lot of support though for that vaccination that that booster shot? Yeah, there's still support for the booster shot, and and in fact, sixty eight percent, two thirds of Canadians continue to support mandatory vaccination for all Canadians who health authorities say it, it, it's, it's safe for. Um, and, and that figure is actually more or less unchanged from where it was about a year ago when we were first talking about, about vaccines. So Canadians still see vaccines as, uh, as, as, as not the way out, but as, as a, a closer or a quicker path to the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are now starting to see some hesitancy, particularly on younger people, particularly among women, uh, when it comes to getting booster shots and, as I said, how many uh, they, they're going to need before we don't have to do that anymore. And what was the regional difference here, right? Because you did see differences for that depending on where people lived. 
Yes, definitely. So if we're looking at uh, support for mandatory vaccination, for example, it's highest in uh, most rural areas of the of the country. So I'm, I'm talking Atlantic Canada, I'm talking mm. Saskatchewan and Manitoba. But I think that has to, maybe has a lot to do with, with availability of hospitals. Uh, so you've got 83% of Atlantic Canadians, 77% of Prairie residents who, who say that they support requiring mandatory vaccination. But support drops to about two-thirds in BC, Ontario, and Quebec, and only 61% in Alberta. So it'll certainly be uh, contentious if government goes that route. They haven't really... Uh, said that they they're going to do that, but of course, you know, we're hearing in places like Quebec that the premier is threatening attacks and other other measures to try to uh, get people to take their shots. Interesting. Then, so what kind of trends have you noticed over time, Sean, in doing these in doing these polls? Well, the trends are that Canadians are are uh, on the seesaw and they're going from uh, fatigued to angry. You know, they they generally are believing that uh, Canadians' leaders maybe aren't doing enough to help us get through this as quickly as possible. Many are frustrated that uh, support for both people and businesses uh, who have been impacted by COVID-19, those supports were there last, you know, in 2020, but they, they seem to not be there anymore, despite the fact that we keep going in and out of these, you know, quasi-lockdowns and curfews in, in, in Quebec. So they're getting tired, they're getting angry, and, you know, we've got provincial elections coming up in Ontario, we've got municipal elections coming up, and Canadians may voice their, their growing displeasure at the ballot box. Well, it certainly makes your job more interesting, doesn't it? Sean, thank you. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, in the last few weeks, we've had a shooting in Langley, a shooting in Coquitlam, and a shooting in Surrey. And we've now heard from police that they don't believe that these shootings are connected to the lower mainland gang conflict that has been plaguing our region for years now. So what were they? Well, for more on that and what police had to say in that briefing yesterday, we're joined by Kim Bolin, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Simi. So was this still connected somehow, though, to drug trafficking? Well, that is what police are telling us. They believe it's connected to the... There, and there have been actually about seven shootings, and three of them, uninvolved bystanders were injured. So that is really troubling. Obviously, you're just you know doing your business. Uh, in Coquitlam in particular, it was just a public area, and two people were injured, though not seriously, who were not involved at all. And in pretty well all of these cases, you know, the person injured in the shooting is not cooperating with police, uh, but they are people who have connections to what police are calling the street-level drug trade. So they are involved in something untoward, according to authorities, but they're not sort of higher up the food chain and connected to some of these mid-level gangs who have been involved in the very brazen shootings that we saw mostly last year. Right. Okay. So this, this press conference that they had yesterday to talk openly about all of these issues, was that unusual or is this something that they do every once in a while? I don't think it's unusual. I think um, why maybe some people were a little bit surprised is that you know, there wasn't an overall sense that the gang war had reignited and that we were seeing, you know, brazen executions, you know, at malls, at the airport, wherever, right? So, uh, but I mean, I think it's excellent that they're trying to put things in context for the general public, let people know that they're on top of what's going on, uh, you know, because it is troubling, as they said yesterday, to see so many shootings in a short period of time. 
Right. But they were also talking about overall, right, how they how they've been targeting this. And they said that the number of violent crimes have actually decreased. Well, they were talking about the end of 2021. I mean, we started off 2021 with you know, a major gang figure being executed in front of his parents in South Surrey. That was Gary Kang. And then there was retaliation like the next day and the day after that. And we had these bursts of very, very violent periods that mostly resulted in people being murdered. Uh, so they really cracked down. They issued, you know, the big posters uh, last right. May saying, if you're near any of these people, we believe they could be targeted in this gang war, uh, you know, so stay, stay clear. So there was a lot of pressure on the people involved. So a lot of those people left town. I did write about that several months ago. Mm-hmm. And by leaving town, you know, things calmed down. And the second half of 2021 was nowhere near as violent as the first half of 2021. However, now we've seen, you know, I just counted seven shootings uh, across the region uh, in two weeks with two people being killed. And, you know, people are rightfully concerned. I think that's why they held the news conference. And, you know, people would like to ultimately see arrests that would reassure everyone uh, more than just, you know, telling us in public what you're doing about it. Yeah. Uh, but still, it's it's good to hear from senior police officers about the shootings. But you made an excellent point there in that they did something that they have rarely done last year when they put out those pictures of people and warned the public. And so they went public, which is not their first choice. But even from what you said, it sounds like it did have the intended and desired effect is that things did settle down after that. Yes, they certainly did settle down because some of the major players were just no longer here. You know, they were hiding out, if you will, in other parts of Canada or in some instances overseas. So uh, some of those people are now back in town. We hope that things don't heat up to the degree that they did in 2021. Uh, But they even said yesterday, uh, the chief superintendent and the superintendent, that it's always a possibility because as we know, the street level drug trade is not completely disconnected, you know, from gangs. Obviously, gangs control many of the drug lines, you know, at the street level, right? So that if things get violent amongst people at the street level drug trade, it can have the effect of reigniting players higher up who may uh, get back involved in some of the brazen shootings that we saw earlier. Right. From what you've observed then, Kim, like what is the attention level like here? Is there a lot of coordination? Are police detachments and different forces cooperating on this issue? They certainly tell us they are. We know they have this real-time intelligence center where, you know, anytime something happens, uh, information is circulated to everyone. Uh, Even if, you know, someone is seen with someone else in a bar and there's concern about those people, you know, potentially executing some uh, act of violence or some crime, that information, you know, is put into this system and everyone sees it. So I do think there's a lot of coordination. I think in some ways it's almost harder to uh, figure out details of shootings at street level because there are a lot of people involved and they're not necessarily big players. Uh, But in one of these cases, at least, uh, the suspect was, you know, sort of almost caught at the scene and was arrested. So we will likely see some charges there. 
but very disturbing that people that are completely uninvolved in the drug trade have also been injured. So I think that's primarily why they had the news conference yesterday to reassure the public that, you know, they're aware of the concern and they're doing what they can to address the violence. Right. Well, Kim, thank you for explaining it to us this morning. Appreciate it. Anytime. Kim Bolin, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. You can read her work there by the paper or check it out online, vancouversun.com. But, you know, it's not very often that you hear the police kind of talk so openly about what they're doing to fight the gang situation. They certainly did some of that yesterday, as Kim pointed out. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about municipal elections. Like, yes, we're about, what, nine months away from actually having them happen, But sounds like there's an awful lot of people behind the scenes who are perhaps musing about running, maybe in, you know, your community. But in Surrey in particular, so much speculation about what is happening there. Now we're hearing that veteran Liberal MP Suk Dhaliwal is considering uh, a run for the Surrey mayoral seat. Now, this is somebody who's already been a three-term member of Parliament and doesn't sound like he's doing anything to tamp down that speculation either. Now, his name joins a growing list of either confirmed or potential candidates to challenge the current mayor, Doug McCallum, who is, by the way, seeking re-election. You've got uh, Surrey Councillor Brenda Locke has already said she plans to run for the job. Uh, Got Councillor Linda Annis. She says that uh, she was weighing her options in this. And then there's still talk about Ginny Sims, who's the Surrey Panorama MLA. Uh, who is also, we hear, thinking about doing this as well. So what is going on in Surrey? Why all this interest? Joining us now is Dr. Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Good morning, Hamish. Good morning, Simi. Since when have we ever seen so much interest in being the mayor of Surrey? Well, I'm not sure that we've seen quite so much interest in the past, but look, Surrey is now the second largest city in the province, fast-growing city. It'll probably overtake Vancouver in the not-too-distant future. And I think there's a sense out there that after a controversial three years as mayor, that Doug McCallum is potentially vulnerable, potentially beatable in this election. So I think a lot of people are considering a run for the job. And is it early, do you think? I mean, are there pros and cons to being bandied about as a name this early in it? Uh, I don't think it's too early. Um, there's a lot to consider if you want to, to run. You really have to assess your, your chances. If you're someone like Suk Dhaliwal, uh, I think he stands a very good chance to be re-elected uh, as a federal MP. That's a job that pays almost $200,000 a year with a very good pension. Do you want to give that up and run for mayor and not win? So you really have to explore the options and, and ensure that you're in a pretty good position. And there's a lot to do. He's not. He wouldn't be running with a political party as he has been in, in federal elections. Uh, he'd have to put together a campaign team, citywide campaign team. He'd have to decide if he's going to run as an independent or with a slate. Uh, he has to decide or determine if there's enough financial support to, to, to launch a, a successful bid. So there's a lot to think about and a lot of sounding out to do before you make your final decision and jump in the ring. Now, is it perceived as winnable at this point? Does it seem like uh, that seems to me usually when a lot of people jump in, right, is that they feel like this thing could anybody could win it? That's right. And uh, there's there's a couple of factors. They have to sort of look at Doug McCallum's own popularity, their popularity as well, you know, their name recognition. Do they have that name recognition to carry the city? But they're also sort of looking at all the other people who might be jumping, jumping into the ring. And, 
if it's a crowded field, then it becomes very unpredictable, as we saw in the Vancouver election last time, where Kennedy Stewart prevailed, but but only barely, and not with a huge uh, plurality of the vote either. So that becomes a, a factor that they're trying to consider as well. Now, even though we always say, Hamish, that the municipal level of politics is the one that is closest to us, right? That's a level of government that is very close to us in terms of services and access and all of that. What is turnout like for municipal elections? Oh, turnout is historically very low in uh, municipal elections. Turnout in Canadian elections has become pretty low. In the last federal election, we were at about 60%. For provincial election, we were down at around 50 And usually for municipal, we're in the 30s, uh, which is unfortunate given, as you say, the, all the services that, that are provided by, by city governments, our garbage collection, our, our water and sewage, our libraries, our rec centres, our police forces, our fire departments. These are all hugely important things. And of course, the cities are setting property taxes that are uh, of importance, not only to property owners, but everybody pays property taxes indirectly. If you're a renter, part of your rent is going to property taxes as well. So it's a very important level of government and people don't pay enough attention to it. That is so true, though. So when you have this much interest this early and people running for it, do you think that means it will get more people interested in the race in terms of voting? I think that's possible. I think that given that Doug McCallum has been a controversial mayor, um, I think people are, I'm sure he still has his supporters. Last time we talked, I made the argument that I'm sure he still has supporters out there. Um, but I think a lot of people will also be motivated to, to see him go. So this could drive turnout up uh, somewhat, for sure. So is Surrey, do you think, the one that everybody's watching, or do you find other races potentially interesting too? Well, I think the Vancouver race is shaping up to be interesting as well. Oh, and And uh, uh, to see if Kennedy Stewart can, can hang on, but others want to get in there as well. So that's going to be a very interesting race. And, you know, municipal politics has really become very interesting. We had very interesting races last fall in Calgary and Edmonton with very interesting outcomes. The race in Montreal was very interesting. You know, municipal politics is where it's happening right now. This is the sense that I get too. But Hamish, why do you think that is? Uh, I think there's a realization uh, growing, you know, we sort of tend to think before as municipal politics being the junior level, you start there and then you move up to the provincial level and then up to the federal level. But I think a lot of people are realizing there's a lot that can be done uh, at the at the local level. You're, if, particularly if you're the mayor, you're not under the constraints of party discipline that you face if you're in the federal or provincial level, and there's not nearly so much travel. I bet Soup Dollywall would like to be able to do <laughs> his job in yeah. Surrey rather than Ottawa every week. That is very true. It's a very different situation. But it isn't interesting that you got these... It used to be you worked your way up like from mayor, then you went into provincial politics, and then you went into federal politics. Now it seems like people are going the other way. Yes, and we have seen that trend over the last 10 or 15 years. Before that, it was always the other direction. But now we've seen quite, uh, you know, Amarjeet Sohi, who is now the mayor of of Edmonton, was a federal politician. Um, We've seen that in Montreal. We've seen it in other places as well, where people have taken, gone the reverse, uh, precisely because they think they can get more done and they can go home every night. (laughs) That's so true. All right, Hamish, thanks so much for talking to us about it this morning. You're welcome, Simi. Dr. Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science, University of the Fraser Valley, uh, talking about just that level of municipal politics, municipal government, and just how much more interesting these races are these days. And yet... 
not very many people vote when it comes to municipal politics, right? You've got mayors who make huge decisions for you on a regular basis that are routinely elected with maybe 30% of voter turnout, which is just astonishingly low when you think about the impact that municipal level of government has. So Surrey shaping up to be a very interesting year, depending on how many candidates they get to run for mayor. I know Vancouver will be interesting too. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time now on this Friday morning for Science with Simi. And today's topic is sunflowers. Yes, they are beautiful to look at. I think of summer whenever I see one. They're beautiful, colorful, tall. But did you also know there's more to them than meets the eye? We mean that in a literal sense. Learning more thanks to a new study out of UBC. So joining us this morning is Dr. Lauren Reesberg, who's the Director of Biodiversity Research, the Biodiversity Research Centre, I should say, at UBC. Dr. Reesberg, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for asking me to, to come. Well, tell me about your research into sunflowers. Why study sunflowers? Well, I've studied them for many years, mainly because um, the wild relatives are, are, um, can be used for uh, improving the um, domesticated species, the crop, but also because they're a wonderful system for studying adaptation and how new species arise in nature. And so what did we learn about them? Well, in this particular study, um, we found that, so I think we've all, we've known for a long time that the human, well, we see these yellow petals on sunflowers, insects actually see a different pattern. They see because the petals or what we call ligules actually contain ultraviolet absorbing pigments. And so uh, insects see a bullseye pattern, whereas we see just the, the beautiful yellow rays. Okay, so they have invisible colors. Is that what you're saying? Yes, they have colors that can, that are just outside of our perception, but can be seen by pollinators. Okay, so what is the purpose? Is that to attract pollinators? So that's what we always thought, that they were mainly there to attract pollinators. And, um, and, and that's, that is the case. Um, in fact, that they're not just found in sunflowers. There are many other species that contain these bullseye patterns. Um, what we found, though, in sunflowers, we found a surprising pattern, that there were two different sizes of these bullseye patterns, one that was very small, one that was very large. And so we were puzzled why that might be. So we did pollination tests. I should say this was done by research associates in my lab, Marco Tedesco and Natalia Berkovich, not by me. And, and we found that, um, that the, these indeed preferred the larger bullseyes. And so we were curious about why this was. And um, what we found was is that the um, bullseye pattern, the large bullseyes were also often found in dry areas, whereas the small bullseye patterns were found in sort of warm, humid areas. And so we suspected that these bullseye patterns might also play a role in, in, um, in controlling water uh, retention or loss. And, and that's actually what happens. Um, we find that um, these petals with large bullseyes, they retain water better, there's less evaporation. Whereas in the small petals, we find that there's more evaporation and this actually cools the, the petals down. Okay. And also, okay, go ahead. I was just going to say, that's fascinating. <laughs> like, we don't, here's something we can't even see that is regulating water control in a sunflower. Yeah, that was a big surprise to us. We were very puzzled why we saw these, these geographic patterns that, that were quite puzzling. Um, it, it, there's some literature on this and people 
thought in the past it was that these that that variation was to protect um, the flowers from damaging UV radiation, um, but that's not the case in this this situation. So, does it vary that the size of that bullseye pattern? Then, does it really depend on where the sunflower is located? Yes. So, if you were to look at a sunflower, let's say in southern Texas, where it's warm and humid you would find a very small bullseye pattern. Whereas if you looked at one, let's say, in the dry areas of, of um, Arizona or California, you would get a very large bullseye. So does that make is that explain to us why then, Dr. Reisberg, sunflowers are so adaptable to different locations? Well, it's one, it's one reason. There are lots of other adapt- adaptations they have that um, allow them to adapt to different regions. For example, some of them, are much more um, uh, tolerant of low nutrients, and these can be found on sand dunes, for example. And others are very disease-resistant and so forth. And so this is just one of many adaptations that allow sunflowers to occupy uh, many different locations. Right. You said that this is not something that you would necessarily expect a flower color to do. Why is that? How does a sunflower behave that is so different from other flowers? Well, it might be that this is, is common, and we just haven't known that. Um, but um, I think people just haven't realized that these pigments have... We know from... There is some evidence from pigments in leaves that it reduces water loss. And so it's perhaps not surprising that um, having these in flowers would have the same effect. Um, I think people have been misled and have been thinking more about the effects of these UV patterns on... Because uh, you do see this geographic variation in other species, and um, I think people have been misled thinking that they were um, important in um, in protecting from UV because UV right. radiation gets greater as you go south, or in um, um, protecting them from heat and so forth. And it turns out, I think that they are missing the, the main mechanism, and that is uh, regulating water loss. So what do we do with this information, or what do you do with this information now? <laughs> Oh, I, I publish it. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> besides that, besides publishing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. No, what, what you know, it, it, it can be useful for, you know, it, you, plant breeders are always looking to reduce water loss. And this would be a really simple way to do it. Um, and it could be, so if you, it, this is any species that has large petals. Um, and so if you want to make it more drought tolerant, um, making that um, flower uh, be uh, um, have a bigger bullseye or have the entire uh, petal be UV absorbent would um, would reduce would increase drought tolerance and so that would be useful whether it's in a, a horticultural crop that's grown for flowers or whether it's in a, a major crop um, uh, such as sunflower where you um, where and and I should say most cultivated sunflowers have a large UV pattern, which is helpful for attracting pollinators, but also for, for increasing drought tolerance. But now that we know this about sunflowers, is this something that you think researchers will now take a look at? See, we'll do all, does, is this how flowers behave? I think it will change. Yes. I think that a lot of researchers who, who study flowers will um, um, be looking at this as one of the factors that explains how they look. Typically we've focused, and, and for good reasons, we've focused on uh, flowers as being adaptations to attract pollinators. And, and I think this paper will just help people to say, oh, there could be a second reason that we see variation in, in sort of um, flower color and size and so forth. Right. Are sunflowers particularly adaptable? 
Sunflowers are, I would say, one of the more adaptable um, um, species on the planet. Um, um, they are found in, a, in a, it, a lot of them are extremophile species and can be found in extreme habitats in Western North America. And so um, they, they grow in places where, um, you know, super salty soils and sort of salt marshes. They grow in these big sand dunes. Um, so they are one of the more adaptable species. And, and from a crop perspective, they're also one of the, the kinds of crops that can be grown on on sort of soils that are, are less fertile, sort of marginal soils, whereas you want to grow your corn and soybean in the best soils, you can put sunflower on something that's less um, right. uh, uh, ideal. And they have these long uh, roots that can reach down six feet so they can actually tap into nutrients that are missed or that leach into the soil and that are missed by, by corn and soybean. So. And now we know why they are so adaptable. Uh, thank you so well, much for your time this morning. Okay. Yes. Appreciate uh, that. Thank you. Yeah. That's do- Dr. Lauren Reisberg is the director of the Biodiversity Research Center at UBC. They just released all this research into sunflowers and how their work shows that there's actually invisible colors on the sunflower that helps the sunflower uh, not just to attract pollinators, but also to regulate uh, water content too, which is fascinating stuff.